There's a story about a preacher who went on vacation and he arranged for somebody, another preacher, to come and preach for him while he was gone. That man stood up and opened the, the sermon by saying, I want to explain to you that I am just a substitute this morning. I want to ask you to imagine breaking a window. Now, if you put in a brand new pane of glass, that's a replacement. But if you just stick a piece of cardboard over it, that's a substitute. Today, I am a substitute. So he went on with his sermon. He not only went on, he went on and on and on. And it was dry and it was long and there really wasn't any point to it. When it was finally over, one of the ladies went out, shook his hand and said, I didn't think of you as a substitute. You were a real pain. (laughs) Donna and I have really been looking forward to sharing with you this morning as a substitute. And I think we can get through this without too much pain. I ran cross country for Northrop High School and I brought along a photograph of those oh so innocent, oh so very thin days. And a few years ago I, I purchased a shirt that is, uh, is it's Northrop orange and it's brown and orange and I, it, stuck, it's, it uh, struck my attention and I wanted one of these as soon as I saw it. It's got my alma mater's name on it, and it's got the new, lo- new updated logo. I kind of like that. It says Bruins. Go Bruins. I'm still a Bruin at heart. But what I really wanted was the big orange pack. That's not a new concept. My cross-country coach, Coach Peterson, lectured us long, and he lectured us often that we were to run in a pack. When we were racing... We were to help each other, talk to each other, encourage one another. We not only ran together, trained together, exercised together, stretched together, we ran together. And the coach wanted us to finish the race ahead of the competition as a big orange pack. And because of our coach, we were a winning team. We had that big orange pack. When I bought this shirt, I did something that I had never done before. I put my name on the back of the shirt. I was going to a, an invitational, cross-country invitational at Northrop High School in Fort Wayne, and I wanted, I wanted to stand out. I thought, bright orange shirt, my name on the back, I'd be just like all the other kids, and it would be a lot of fun. And it, and it was, but I also wanted to bring my shirt this morning and, and show it to you because I wanted to ask you which side of the jersey are you playing for? There's a side of the jersey with your name on it. There's a side of the jersey with the team's name on it. Now, that jersey with the team's name on it is very important, isn't it? We all know that Tim Tebow has a new jersey, right? Next season he's going to be playing with the New York Jets. And you know that Jeremy Lin wears a jersey for the New York Knicks. And because of the big scandal this summer about players being paid a bounty for injuring players on another team, we know that Dog the Bounty Hunter plays for the New Orleans Saints. 
So here's my question for you this morning. Who do you play for? And depending on who you are playing for, some of the things that I have to say to you this morning may not be just real easy to hear. Especially if you're thinking that it's about you. Because what Jesus has to teach us is that it is not about you. It's about God. So I want to take you to Mark chapter 7. And I want to read for you the first 15 verses there. And I want us to see this morning it's not about you. It's about God. Jesus has something to teach us about our relationship with God. And how our relationship with Him and how we interact with Him affects our worship. So let me read for you from the book of Mark, chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. The Pharisees and some teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of His disciples eating food with unclean. That is, ceremonially unwashed hands. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, for their teachings are but rules. Taught by men, you have let go the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say... That if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is a gift devoted to God, then he no longer, then, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone. And understand this, nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, were faced with an obstacle. They had an obstacle to their relationship with God, and that obstacle to their relationship with God created a barrier to their worship. They had a tradition. Actually, they had lots of traditions. 
They had traditions about hair and traditions about clothes and music and what one could do on the Sabbath day. Many of their traditions had roots in the Old Testament. But there were other traditions that they had created themselves. And they laid on top of the people over the commands of God. One of their traditions had to do with washing. Now, it's important to note that they weren't using antibacterial soap in an effort to do away with germs. This was a ceremonial. This was a ritual cleansing. It was to make them spiritually clean. My research into this passage revealed that they, not, they, they would only use a handful of water. Not enough to get off any dirt or any grime, nothing like that. It was just to be ritually clean. And then Jesus tells us about another tradition. They had a tradition about giving things to God. Now, any preacher will tell you giving things to God is good. Any preacher, a substitute or a real pain, he will tell you that giving things to God is really important. Not only is from the preacher's perspective, but the Old Testament has instruction about giving things to God. So they created this rule of their own. They could call something korban. That meant they were giving it to God. They promised it to God, but they were going to hold on to it for a little while longer. Now, there was a decision made. It didn't happen in a court of law. It wasn't really legal. But some very respected religious leaders said that if an individual has wealth and dedicates it to God, promises it to God, and then his father or mother become ill and need help, He cannot use that which has been promised to God to help his father or mother. Well, that goes very clearly. Jesus points it out. That goes very clearly against the teaching of the Old Testament that we are to honor our father and mother. That's the fifth commandment. And so their tradition became a barrier to obeying the expressed will of God. It became an obstacle in their relationship with God and our and an obstacle in their worship. They read the commands of Moses. They read them regularly. They read them often. But they just didn't get it. That reminded me of a story I heard about a couple that was vacationing in Washington State. They wanted to go to the Olympic Peninsula and go all the way to the the coast and to see the rainforests there. But they were a little late in the season and they'd been warned there could be heavy snow. There may even be snow slides that cover the road. But they summoned all their courage and they packed up the car and they headed toward the rainforest. Somewhere down the road they saw a sign. It said ice five miles ahead. They were concerned about that. They went a little farther and saw another sign. Ice, one mile ahead. They got to another sign that said ice, one half mile ahead. At this point, they slowed down. They were just barely creeping along. Finally, they came to the last sign. It was in front of a little grocery store. It said ice, 75 cents. It's so easy to see the signs. It's so easy to read the scriptures. It's so easy to look at our own traditions and still get it all Wrong. Jesus told the Pharisees in the teaching of the law that what they were doing did not matter. It didn't matter because they had it all completely turned around. Look at what Jesus said. Mark chapter 7, the last verse of our text there, verse 15. 
Jesus said, Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. We have our traditions too. We have our rituals. And sometimes they become obstacles to our worship. Sometimes it's things we do individually. Sometimes it's things that we do collectively. We have our traditions, don't we? We have our traditions about where prayers are said in the service. We have a tradition about how long the minister is allowed to speak. You, you have brand new chairs. Since Donna and I were here last, they're very comfortable. I really like them. And I'll bet you already have assigned seats, don't you? We have our traditions. We have our notions about the way things ought to be. Very often, those notions have absolutely nothing to do with what the Bible teaches. We also have our distractions to worship. It happens almost every Sunday, doesn't it? There's a fussy child or somebody comes in during the service or somebody leaves during the service. The, something happens with the video projector or there's a squeal in the sound system or a microphone doesn't get turned on or it's too hot or it's too cold, it's too windy, it's too bright, it's too dark. The songs were too slow. The songs repeated too much. The songs were too old. The songs were too new. The music's too loud and I can't hear anything. Is it any wonder, with all those distractions, that I don't get anything out of it? Seven dangerous Words. I don't get anything out of it. Seven very revealing words. I don't get anything out of it. Now, it is true that those of us who are on the platform have a responsibility. The music team, everybody that offers a prayer, the person that does the communion meditation, we all have a responsibility. We must do our best. We must bring every ability, every gift, every talent, every skill, every effort that God has given us to this stage. And we must do our very best because we serve Almighty God. At the same time, we all have to remember that it's not about us. I might be inadequate. I might be incompetent. God help me, I might be boring. But it's not about me. It's about God. Now, people are very often, they're kind and they'll say, Oh, I really enjoyed the service today. I really like the sermon today. That's a wonderful encouragement. But maybe you've been on the other side of that. And maybe you have said, I didn't get anything out of it. And maybe you've heard that from other people. Maybe you've heard somebody say, I don't go to church because I just don't get anything out of it. And my response to that is, so what? You didn't get anything out of it? You weren't supposed to. It wasn't about you. And I know that's a hard thing to hear. That sounds vicious and cruel, doesn't it? What kind of ogre would say it's not about you? And yet it's not. It's about God. We're so easily distracted. We get distracted about what I want 
and what I need and what I enjoy, what I like, what benefits me, when all the time it is about God. I'm actually preaching this sermon for me this morning because I need this reminder. I'm in a situation that I have avoided for the past 30 years. My ministry with the church in Fort Wayne has come to an end, and I don't have another church to go to right away. Now, we're doing fine. God is providing really well. We still have an income, and we're not in a panic. At the same time, things are a little muddy. Recently, I had an interview with the church, and I had an awfully good time with the people on the search team. We laughed a lot. I really liked those people, and I really wanted that job. So as Donna and I were talking about what was going on, I came to realize that my focus was on the wrong side of the jersey. I was thinking about what I wanted and what would benefit me. I wasn't thinking about what was best for the kingdom of God. So we're still searching. We're still praying. We're still looking for the opportunity that will be best for the kingdom of God and the glory of Jesus Christ. If we're going to focus on the right target, If we are really going to make this about God and not about us, we're going to have to stay focused. Leland Riken is an author and a professor at Wheaton College. He very accurately described our culture when he said, We worship our work, work at our play, and play at our worship. I think he's right. Americans do worship their work. Consider how we introduce people. Somebody might say, who's that guy over there? And the answer might be, oh, that's Louis Louis Smithers, ABC Manufacturing. Is he really ABC Manufacturing? Or is that just his job? Well, in our culture, maybe he really is ABC Manufacturing. Because we are so devoted to our work, we will sacrifice We will sacrifice our time. We will sacrifice our energy. We will sacrifice our health. We will sacrifice our families on the altar of career. We worship our work. And we work at our play. As I talk with young people, I find out that many of them know all of the really big-name sports stars on all the professional sports teams. But they can't name the president's whose faces are on Mount Rushmore. They've mastered the skateboard and the jump shot, but they can't spell. While they're busy with that, their parents are packing sports stadiums, they're buying big screen televisions, they are laboring for hours to perfect their golf swing. And by the way, I did my homework, and the presidents on the face of Mount Rushmore, from left to right, are George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln. Do you see how easy it is to get sidetracked? I just lost my focus in a sermon that's about keeping our focus. 
What I was trying to say to you is that we put so much time, so much effort, so much money into our play. And then when we decide, let's go to worship today, we come in at 10.02, grumble that we can't find a seat on the back row, look at our watch for the entire hour, and then say, I didn't get anything out of it. And one of the reasons we play at our worship is that we have forgotten that it is not about me. The reality is that it's about God. King David taught me that. I want to take you to Psalm 27 and verse 4. It reads, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to dwell upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him. That's what I want to draw your attention to. To seek Him in His temple. Have you ever felt that God neglected you? Have you ever felt that God did not focus on you? I want to ask you to notice something here. David did not go to God saying, Find me! Find me! Instead, he went to God seeking Him. And God tells us we must seek Him. We learn that from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Now, the part of this verse that is very commonly quoted is just the first part. The first part of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and rewards those who earnestly seek Him. So what do you want? What are you after? What are you looking for? If you want God, then you are going to have to go after Him. You're going to have to look for Him. You're going to have to pursue Him. And to do that, you may have to give up some habits, give up some prejudices or some preferences. You may have to give up some things that are very important to you, but that's okay. I can give up things that are important to me and you can give up things that are important to you because it's not about you. It's about God. It is about seeking God. So once you have found Him, once you have overcome the obstacles, what is this thing that we've been calling worship? How might we define worship? Well, entire books have been written trying to define worship. And in the short period of time that we have together this morning, I'm not going to be able to give you a detailed definition of worship. But I do want to take a moment just to offer a very brief definition. Worship is so much more than music. Sometimes a music leader will introduce a portion of a service and, he, and will say, we're coming to our worship time. But music, is, music enhances worship, but worship is so much more than just music. Prayer is an element of worship. The Lord's Supper is a part of worship. Our offering time is a time of worship. But worship happens other than on Sunday morning. 
when you read your Bible, when you are really digging into it, trying to pursue God, that is worship. When you pray in the privacy of your home, or even if you go into an inner closet as Jesus taught us to do, that is worship. But I want to offer you a definition of worship that is different from all of that. I want to ask you to look again at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your act of spiritual worship. How does the Apostle Paul define worship? He defines it. As resisting evil, not giving in to temptation, doing what is right, and keeping our thoughts and our actions holy. When we do that, we offer a spiritual act of worship. That means at work, with your children, on vacation, at school, in a restaurant, in your home, and at Walmart. When you do what is right, you are worshiping. Worshiping is recognizing the power of God Almighty with us. And that is a long way from boring. In a church service, the people on the platform can join us in seeking that presence. But it isn't about performance. It's about seeking God. The Almighty is the focus of our worship. So I want to go back. I want to go back to a question that I opened with. I want to go back to, who do you play for? Are you playing for yourself? Are you here for what you can get out of this service? Would you like to go home this morning feeling a little less guilt? Would you like to go home this morning thinking you've done your duty for the week? Would you just like to go home this morning feeling better about yourself? Well, if that's what you came for, I hope you get all of that. But I'm still asking, who do you play for? Maybe you're, maybe you're part of the team that is on the stage, part of the few that stand up and talk and pray and sing. And maybe you're part of the chair team. Whatever it is we're doing, we need to do it together. Like my cross-country team, as a church, you won't get very far unless you're running with the pack. The focus of worship is not the stage. The focus of worship is not about me. And it's not about you. It's about God. So what I'm asking you this morning is who do you play for? Maybe another way to ask that is why are you here? Are you here for your own enrichment? Are you here because you want God's blessing so you can be more successful? Are you here this morning because you want to be a better person? Or are you pursuing God? John Sununu was the White House Chief of Staff in the early 1990s under the first President Bush. A reporter one time asked him if his job was difficult. And Mr. Sununu very quickly said no. 
And so the reporter thought that he'd misunderstood the question. So he asked again, is your job difficult? And he said once again, no. It helps to know Mr. Sununu's background. He'd been the governor of the state of New Hampshire. And he said the reason his job was not difficult was that he only had one constituent. He knew that his whole job was to please the president. How many people are you trying to please? Do you feel like you're being pulled in all kinds of different directions? What would it be like for you to only have one constituent to please? Or maybe you've been focused. Maybe you've been trying to please just one constituent. And that constituent has been yourself. If you've just been out to please yourself, to make yourself happy, to fulfill yourself, to make yourself self-actualized. Has that been satisfying? Has that left you feeling empty? If you've been playing for yourself, I ask you to consider this. It's not about you. It's about God. Are you ready for your Sunday mornings to have more purpose? Are you ready for your Sunday afternoons to be more than about a nap or a football game? Are you ready for your whole life to be filled with a genuine, meaningful purpose? If you want that, maybe it's time for you to start playing for the other side of the jersey. If you want to begin to pursue God, we're offering you an invitation this morning. Today, you can begin to earnestly seek the God who loves you so very much. Today, you can turn away from from playing your own game and you can play on His team. Today, you can be baptized into Jesus Christ. Not just for a new start. For a whole new ball game. If I have said something this morning that you want to ask a question about, Donna and I are going to be here for the meal this afternoon. I would love to talk to you. And you have elders in this church that would like to share with you. If you have a question about following Jesus Christ, if you have a question about pursuing God, then I would encourage you to find one of the elders. Craig told me he's going to be at the grill today. So if you need to find an elder, you know where you can find at least one. Let me lead us in a prayer. Father in heaven, I am so, so overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed by your mercy and your grace. I'm humbled. Humbled that you would allow me, that you would invite me to be your servant. And so I ask, Father, that as we have begun a new week, you will work in me. You will work in each of us for your honor, for your glory, for your team. I ask, Father, that your Spirit will work in us as we shift our focus, as we begin to make our lives not about me, but about seeking you. I ask that you will work in us in the name of Jesus. Amen.